Synchronicity is defined as the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. Synchronicities are events connected to one another not by strict cause and effect, but by what in classical times were known as sympathies, by the belief that an a-causal relationship exists between events on the inside and the outside of ourselves, crosstalk between mind and matter, which is governed by a certain species of attraction. What happened in 1969 in the case of the Manson murders ended up being full of synchronicities. They were happenings that though they weren't directly cause and effect, they did help in solving the case, despite missed opportunities, incorrect paths, and potential red herrings in the investigation. I'm Chad Mortensen, and this is Saints and Sinners True Crime in the History of the West, California Manson Country, Part 1, The Bloody Clothes, The Gun, and The Door to Trent Reznor's Studio. On the morning of Saturday, August 9th, 1969, housekeeper Winifred Chapman arrived at 10050 Cielo Drive. Miss Chapman noticed that the phone lines were down just outside the chain leak fence and gate that led to the driveway of the property and continued into a back entrance of the house, not noticing that a dead teenager lay on the front seat of a car near the gate and two more bodies lay upon the lawn. Winifred walked into the kitchen, picked up the phone, discovered that there was no dial tone, and then, planning to inform her employer, she walked from the kitchen into the living room. There, she discovered a gruesome crime scene that would likely haunt her the rest of her life. The dead body of eight months pregnant Sharon Tate, alongside that of another man with a towel over his head. Winifred ran, screaming from the house, and ran down Cielo Drive to a neighbor's house so she could use their phone to call the police. It took the police nearly an hour to arrive at the crime scene. She was still extremely frantic when the police arrived and began to ask her about who lived in the house and the details of what she had found. She was hard to understand at first, mentioning names like Polanski and Furkowski that didn't jog the collective memory of law enforcement. Eventually, they were able to determine that the property was rented by 26-year-old Sharon Tate, a film actress along with her husband, movie director Roman Polanski. Roman wasn't there. He had been in London scouting out filming locations for a new movie that was in pre-production and would be called The Day of the Dolphin. It was eventually released in 1973 and starred George C. Scott. Polanski was originally slated to be the director, but due to the news he received by phone on that fateful day from his manager, Bill Tennant, Roman abandoned the project. Mike Nichols would eventually direct the film. Tennant delivered the news to Roman that his wife, Sharon, had been murdered in their home, along with several others. Sharon was eight and a half months pregnant with their son, who would posthumously be named Paul Richard Polanski, after both of his grandfathers. Roman completely fell apart upon hearing the news, sobbing and sinking to the ground. It would be two more days before he could properly compose himself enough to fly home from London. The crime scene was not only horrific, but confusing. Three bodies outside, two inside, 
Ropes tied around the necks of the inside bodies, blood everywhere. Evidence of a struggle, no evidence of property theft. Roman returned home to Beverly Hills and Benedict Canyon, to the house that he had shared with his wife Sharon for the past several months. He looked over the crime scene and there is actually a photo of him taken by Time Magazine sitting next to the front door of the house. The door is white in the same rustic Normandy design as the rest of the house with nine panels of glass in it. Below the glass panels next to the doorknob is the word pig written in blood. It would later be proven that the blood was in fact Sharon's and the killer or killers had dipped a towel in her blood and written the word pig on the door before leaving that night. In 1988, the industrial rock band Nine Inch Nails was formed in Cleveland, Ohio. Singer, songwriter, instrumentalist, and producer Trent Reznor had a very cutting edge vision for how he wanted his music to be made. In 1989, the band's debut album, Pretty Hate Machine, was released. After spending 113 weeks on the Billboard 200, Pretty Hate Machine became one of the first independently released records to obtain a platinum certification. The band went on a European tour in early 1992 opening for Guns N' Roses. Nine Inch Nails wasn't well received internationally yet at that point, but they were gaining notoriety in the US. Later that year, Trent Reznor had broken with TVT Records over control issues with his music. He wanted a change for the direction of the band and he heard of a rental home becoming available at 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon just outside Beverly Hills. Reznor rented the house starting in late 1992 and he set up his recording studio. This studio he would dub Pig, sometimes called Le Pig, in a reference to the killer or killers writing Pig in Tate's blood on the front door of the house. It was the site of recording sessions for most of the Nine Inch Nails EP, Broken. In fact, there is still a music video on YouTube for the track Gave Up from the Broken EP in which there are several shots of the outside of the house, as well as interiors, which was their recording studio, set up in the exact same room where Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring were murdered. The majority of the album The Downward Spiral was recorded there. Marilyn Manson recorded sections of the album Portrait of an American Family at the in-house studio in 1992. Reznor moved out in December 1993, later explaining, there was too much heavy history in the house for me to handle. Reznor made a statement about working in the Tate house during a 1997 interview with Rolling Stone, in which he said, while I was working on Downward Spiral, I was living in the house where Sharon Tate was killed. Then one day I met her sister, it was such a random thing, just a brief encounter. And she said, are you exploiting my sister's death by living in her house? For the first time, the whole thing kind of slapped me in the face. I said, no, it's just sort of my own interest in American folklore. I'm in this place where a weird part of history occurred. I guess it never really struck me before, but it did then. She lost her sister from a senseless, ignorant situation that I don't want to support. When she was talking to me, I realized for the first time, what if it was my sister? I thought, I don't want to be looked at as a guy who supports a serial killer. I went home and cried that night. It made me see that there's another side to things, you know? But when you understand the repercussions that are felt, that's what sobered me up. Realizing that what balances out the appeal of the lawlessness and the lack of morality, and that whole thing is the other end of it. The victims who don't deserve that. 
Reznor was told that the house would be demolished in 1994 and that he would be the last resident. He took with him the front door of the house. He moved to New Orleans and he used the front door as the front door of his studios in New Orleans, Nothing Studios. So I'd heard about this urban legend for several years that he kept the door from Cielo Drive and took it all the way from California to New Orleans, Louisiana so he could use it as the front door of his studios. But I wanted to see for myself. In the spring of 2012, my brother and I stayed in New Orleans for a few days as we were getting ready to leave on a Caribbean cruise. We stayed near the French Quarter and I remember doing a vampire tour walking around Jackson Square. I was wearing a Ferris Bueller's Day Off shirt that I was pretty proud of. One of the women on the tour was hitting on me and she kept commenting on my shirt. I was more than a little amused by that. We both shared our favorite scene in the movie which is when Charlie Sheen is talking to Jennifer Grey on the couch in the police station and he looked like he hadn't slept for days. I didn't get her number. I remember how excited I was to walk through the garden district with my brother looking for nothing studios to see if, in fact, the front door of the studio was the door from the Tate house. We found the studios, but they were renovating it so the door had temporarily been removed. I was more than a little disappointed. Nothing Studios was later sold and the facade of the building was changed. The front door Reznor removed from 10050 Cielo Drive was then passed on to the new owner of the building in New Orleans, where the studios had been. Most recently, the door was purchased at auction by its current owner, Christopher Moore, who said he had been trying for years to obtain the door, and through some fortunate events, he was finally able to obtain it. He said he will be using it in his new house. I can't help but think about Trent Reznor's comments when he was talking to Rolling Stone magazine in 1997 and talking about that time when he bumped into Patty Tate, Sharon's younger sister, and how maybe he felt guilty about taking that door away from the house. I think maybe possibly he felt like a burden had been lifted when he finally was able to let it go. So the house at 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, where the Tate murders were committed by the Manson family, was demolished in 1994. The address was changed to 10066 Cielo Drive and sold to Jeff Franklin, the creator of Full House. He turned it into a 20,000 square foot mansion complete with a 15 car underground garage, six bars, five aquariums, two swimming pools, and a museum dedicated to Elvis Presley. The larger house that sits there today is still on an amazing property and commands 180 degree views of downtown Los Angeles, Hollywood, and Beverly Hills. So the original house at 10050 Cielo, where the Manson murders took place on the night of August 8th to the 9th, 1969, and Sharon Tate and four others were killed, was torn down in 1994. In its 50 years of existence, that house had been the residence of Cary Grant at one point, Henry Fonda, Olivia Hussey, and Candace Bergen. And in 1968, Charles Manson even made an appearance there. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about how there were some missteps in the investigation of the murders that took place at Cielo Drive. I want to tell you about the boy that found the gun. On Monday, September 1st, 1969, it was a quintessentially Southern California day, sunny and breezy. Ten-year-old Stephen Weiss was playing in his backyard about halfway up the hill 
which sloped up toward Beverly Glen Boulevard, one of the major streets that winds through Benedict Canyon, a swanky and secluded enclave whose celebrity residents have included Humphrey Bogart, Jimi Hendrix, and Anne Margaret. Something caught Stephen's eye. Shining in the sun was a 22 caliber Longhorn revolver with a broken grip and two live rounds in the chamber. It wasn't the first time the boy had seen a gun. Six months earlier, Bernard Weiss, an electrical engineer, had taken his only son on a road trip to Las Vegas. Somewhere in the middle of the Mojave Desert, the elder Weiss steered his 1964 Buick Skylark to the side of I-15 and pulled a 22 caliber target pistol from the trunk. Bernard showed little Stephen how to hold the gun and how to very carefully pick it up by the top of the barrel and point it away from his face. Father and son shot tin cans in the desert, then Bernard packed up the gun and they resumed the 300 mile road trip to Las Vegas. After Stephen found the revolver in his yard, rumors swirled that he knew how to safely handle the weapon because he had watched Dragnet on TV. But the fact was he'd never even seen the 1950s police drama and he credited Bernard Weiss, not Joe Friday, with instilling in him a healthy respect for guns. Stephen was a huge sports fan, a Laker fan to be exact, and he would watch their games all the time with his dad. The team had moved from Minneapolis to Los Angeles in 1961 as owner Bob Short saw how successful it was for the Brooklyn Dodgers of pro baseball to relocate to LA in 1958. So he decided to follow suit the Lakers and their newly drafted star Elgin Baylor had been swept by the Boston Celtics in the 1959 NBA Finals, but the following year they couldn't get past the St. Louis Hawks in the Conference Finals. Their success in Minneapolis had been intermittent. Short decided to move the team to what would be a larger market on the West Coast. Southern California wasn't the land of 10,000 lakes, but the team retained its name in LA and had continued success throughout the 60s and beyond with the addition of point guard Jerry West and other greats who would later be added to the squad. Thankfully, young Steven knew how to properly handle a gun. Two months after he found the loaded revolver, the LA Times reported that two boys, ages 11 and 12, died just days apart in separate shootings in the area. Both had been playing with a gun when it discharged. When Weiss spotted the gun, which it was later determined was tossed from a car racing northeast on Beverly Glen in the middle of the night by someone who was unaware of the houses below. He initially thought it might be a toy. Dusty and rusty, the gun's long barrel was loose and slightly askew, as if it had been used as a hammer. When Weiss gingerly picked it up by the tip of the barrel just as his father had instructed, the gun was heavy enough that he immediately knew it was real. He carefully placed it on the patio and called his dad, who then called the Los Angeles Police Department. Rookie officer Michael Watson came out to the house and picked up the gun. Weiss said years later that Officer Watson put his fingerprints all over it. Even as a 10-year-old boy, Stephen was shocked by the patrolman's carelessness in the handling of the weapon. But no one had any idea of knowing how important this gun would turn out to be. Watson booked the gun into evidence at the nearby Van Nuys police station. A few months later, in December, Bernard was reading through the Los Angeles Herald Examiner when a story caught his eye. The LAPD, FBI, and Interpol were scouring the globe for the weapon used in the August murder of actress Sharon Tate and four others for which several people had recently been arrested. 
Bernard showed little Stephen the picture of the gun in the paper and commented on how similar it looked to the gun that he had found. It was then that the pieces started to fall into place. Ten-year-old Stephen Weiss had discovered the revolver used by four members of the Manson family to savagely murder pregnant actress Sharon Tate and four others, a crime that paralyzed Angelinos in the late summer and fall of 1969 and continues to haunt Southern Californians and millions of people across the globe to this day. Stephen's find would help to implicate the Manson family in the Tate and LaBianca murders. So a gun that might have been forgotten about, booked into evidence, never seen again and possibly discarded, ended up becoming a key piece of evidence. Again, one of the many synchronicities in this case. In the summer of 2011, my then girlfriend and I needed to get away for a few days. In 2008, I had read the book Helter Skelter about the Manson murders and was always curious about the look of the Hollywood Hills where the Tate and LaBianca murders took place. We rented a car and drove to Southern California. One of the first places I wanted to see was Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale. It's an amazing place. There are hundreds of celebrities buried there. On June 25, 2009, Michael Jackson had died and I knew that he hadn't been buried at Neverland Ranch, but instead he was buried in the Great Mausoleum at Forest Lawn. It's a huge, beautiful green cemetery on the north side of the small mountain range where if you go directly to the south, you would basically come to the Hollywood sign. So in the middle of a sunny spring day, I weaved through the cemetery in my rental car with my girlfriend. She began to be uneasy, something I hadn't been aware of up to that point in our short-lived relationship was her distaste of cemeteries. She just didn't like them. Her unease made me uneasy, and to be frank, slightly annoyed. I wanted to at least make it to the Great Mausoleum so that we could see where Michael Jackson's final resting place was. But it was not to be. She put her foot down and wanted to leave right away. We left and I took her to the second place on the LA tour that I wanted to go to. The iconic downtown location known as Angel's Knoll where the movie 500 Days of Summer had filmed several scenes on the bench. It's a beautiful park. There was a bench there with a plaque on it that mentioned the movie 500 Days of Summer. In my opinion, one of the most realistic movies about dating. There's also a streetcar that goes at a 45 degree angle up and down the hill known as Angel's Flight. It's featured in several movies. One of the newer Muppet films, you can see it in the back of 500 Days of Summer as you watch some of the scenes. It was also in HBO's Perry Mason series that started last year. It's a known landmark. So we rode the streetcar down to the bottom, back up to the top, and by then, we were starting to get along better. So the tour of Los Angeles continued. We drove through Beverly Hills and found the road that led to the canyon leading to Cielo Drive. We wound our way up the hill to the dead end of Cielo. There's a huge, fancy wooden gate there now where there used to be a chain link fence and a gate to let cars in and out. It felt surreal to look over to the right near the telephone pole where Tex Watson had climbed up and cut the phone lines that night. Then he, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, and Linda Kasabian quietly climbed over the fence that night before they came upon Stephen Parent driving his car down the driveway and before they broke into the house and murdered four more people. We went to the LaBianca house as well, where the next night, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca would also be murdered by the Manson family. That house still stands today and looks very much like it did the night the murders happened. The final place we visited 
was 2901 Benedict Canyon Drive. There's an interesting story surrounding that place. The night of the murders, Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian had brought changes of dark clothing so they could change after committing the murders. After leaving the house that night, they walked down Cielo to their car and began to drive away. They stopped briefly and washed off in the sprinklers that were watering the lawn at a nearby house. Then they changed their clothes and they tied their dirty clothes together. As they were driving down the canyon, they threw their blood-stained clothes out the side window of the car to get rid of the evidence. This was in the early morning hours of August 9th. Those clothes were not found until December 15th of that same year. By then, Susan Atkins and several others had been initially charged with the murders, and she said they dumped their clothes along the road that night, but she couldn't remember where. A news crew from the LA Times went to Cielo and drove what would have been the same route the killers would have used that night. They timed it out, exactly per the events that they knew about. They stopped and pulled over at around the location they thought the clothes might have been dumped. They looked down off the hill, and down below was a clump of black clothing. They had found the clothes worn by the killers on that night in August four months before. One more key piece of evidence, located not by police officers, but by news reporters. In the next episode, we will round out what happened those nights in August during the murders and how the killers were brought to justice. Thank you for joining me for Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you.